Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films. And, you know, maybe one that influenced their own work. It has uh, some kind of similarities. And today, I'm really excited to have writer-director Jessica Hausner with me. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Um, For those of you who aren't as familiar with Jessica's work, please let me give you an introduction. Jessica was born in Vienna, Austria in 1972. She studied directing at the Film Academy of Vienna, where she made the award-winning short films Flora and Interview. And in 1999, she formed the production company Coop 99 with Barbara Albert, Antonin Svoboda, and Martin Gestalt. In 2001... Her debut feature film, Lovely Rita, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in Uncertain certain Regard. The film is a skewering of bourgeois mundanity told through the eyes of a bored teen girl whose tiny rebellions culminate in an ultimate tragedy. Jessica returned to Uncertain Regard with her second feature, Hotel, in 2004, this time dipping her toe into genre. Hotel is a psychological thriller following a young woman who accepts a job at a luxury resort deep in the Alps, only to find her predecessor disappeared without explanation. As the woman spends more and more time in the secluded place, her psyche slowly unravels. In 2009, Jessica's third feature, Lords, about a bittersweet miracle cure, was selected in competition at Venice Film Festival, where it was awarded the uh, Fipresci Prize. Then Amor Fu, a historical fiction on the life of writer Heinrich von Kleist, became Hausner's third film to be presented in Uncertain Regard, where it premiered in 2014. Now she's back with Little Joe, a sci-fi story about a plant developed to make humans happy, but who also possibly develops its own sinister intentions. Starring Emily Beecham and Ben Wishaw, and uh, Little Joe also marks Jessica's English language debut. So that's a big thing, and this movie is coming out soon, correct? Yes. Now, Jessica, the movie that you chose to talk about today that we're going to dissect is called The Visit by M. Night Shyamalan. I was wondering, can you give me a little explanation about how you came upon this film and, you know, what you thought about it, why, why you selected it today? Um, well, I came upon this film because someone recommended it. With um, Little Joe, I've been to some fantasy film festivals and that was really interesting because I love genre films, films a lot, especially mm-hmm. horror films, but also sci-fi films. And so someone recommended me to see that film because I've seen several films of that director, mm-hmm. but I hadn't seen this one. So... Truth is, I started to watch it, but after, I don't know, 45 minutes, I became quite afraid, or maybe I watched (laughs) one hour. And I have to admit, I didn't dare to continue watching it. You missed some of the... All right. Well, here's the deal. I'm going to spoil it for you right now. Um, Because for those of you who haven't seen The Visit, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto, as always, is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch The Visit first, this is your chance. And now that you're back, let me introduce The Visit with a short synopsis. Written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, The Visit stars Catherine Hahn as a mother sending her two children, Becca and Tyler, played by Olivia de Jong and Ed Oxenbold, for a visit to meet their grandparents. She reveals she hasn't spoken to her parents in years, after marrying her high school teacher, which was a big no-no. Becca brings a camera, intending to make a documentary about the trip. They meet Nana and Pop-Pop at the train station, who bring them to an isolated farmhouse where they're told to be in bed by 9.30 and to never, ever go in the basement. You guys are good kids. This is going to be a great week. 
By the way, there's mold in the basement. We don't want you guys to get sick. They were a little weird, but the kids expected that. But that night, Becca goes downstairs after curfew and finds Nana vomiting everywhere on everything. Freaked out, she confronts Pop-Pop about it, and he says she's just got the flu. Grandmother's fine. She had a little bit of a stomach flu last night. Must have been a 24-hour thing. I knew it was something like that. Later, Tyler goes into Pop-Pop's shed and finds a bunch of dirty adult diapers. Becca begins interviewing Nana for her documentary, but Nana freaks out and begins shaking, and she doesn't quite understand why. No more questions about Loretta Jameson. Maybe I can ask... I don't want to star in your movie. Later, a woman comes to the door saying Nana and Pop-Pop helped her with counseling, their work. But Nana and Pop-Pop quickly usher her to the back of the house, where she disappears. Becca and Tyler are unnerved. Tyler leaves the camera on in the living room overnight, catching Nana wielding a knife and trying to break into their rooms. The kids call Mom to get them, but when Mom sees the footage, she reveals some terrible news. These people aren't her parents. Those aren't your grandparents. What are you talking about, Mom? Where are Nana and Pop-Pop? You've been staying with those people the whole time? The kids are forced to play a tense game of Yahtzee and pretend they don't know anything. But Becca goes to the basement and finds two corpses of her real grandma and grandpa and some uniforms from a nearby mental hospital there where their grandparents worked. Becca's imprisoned in Nana's bedroom while the old woman is sundowning. Then Tyler gets nearly suffocated with a dirty adult diaper. Becca stabs Nana and escapes to the kitchen, where she attacks Pop-Pop, and Tyler finishes him off with the refrigerator door. Mom and the cops show up. She's sad she never got to reconnect with them before they passed. The trio move on, traumatized but bonded. So... It is a very scary movie, but also very funny. Um, And I wanted to get into uh, one thing which might seem less evident, but writing for single locations, um, specifically because of budget. Um, Something M. Night Shyamalan said was, quote, we can't leave the locations much when we are making a smaller budgeted movie. And I found this farmhouse. I shot it in Pennsylvania near where I live. And there was a farm that was going under foreclosure. And I asked, can I rent this room for you for six months before you put it on fire sale. I gave them the whole spiel about once I make a movie there, you can sell it for more and all of that stuff. And they said yes. And that's where we filmed the movie. And so, Jessica, I wanted to talk to you about that idea of having to find a single location and really trying to craft a movie around what that is. Um, in your experience of filmmaking, you know, were you ever put on the spot of trying to do that, trying to fulfill these budget constraints? No, I normally don't uh, focus on a location. I focus on an idea, and then I find the suitable location. What was your process for hotel, I'm curious, because, you know, that one, you you do have to have a a kind of specific resort, you know. Yes, but I I created the place in my head. So when I was writing the story, I sort of invented my ideal hotel. And then when the story was there, when I had written the scenario, I started to look for that location. So we actually split up the hotel into different hotels that were mm-hmm. um, there w- where we shot. And this was because not one single hotel could offer all the needs of the script. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we built basically our hotel 
our ideal ideal hotel in in, in the film. You built your ideal hotel in the yeah, film. Yeah, well, by combining different locations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, was that something that you've done for most of your films? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I never really start from um, a really existing place. Maybe except Lourdes. Lourdes was one film where the location really had a played a great role in the film. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's more um, an. Uh, an invented place and then mm-hmm. afterwards I try to find it in reality. Yeah. So it's it's a kind of combination of the two, I feel, is like what you're telling me, that you create it in your mind, you build it, but then you kind of continue crafting the story around what you've found. No, I don't change the story accordingly to what I find. I look as long until I find the location that suits the story. So you are an extremely precise director. Yes. <laughs> I think it's funny. I mean, this movie, I feel like I hopefully you can appreciate what M. Night Shyamalan is doing here, which it seems to be exact opposite of what you're doing. Because, for instance, he lived in this house that he got that, you know, he lived there for three months rewriting. And he said, quote, we had this incredible situation where I had the actual house where we were shooting through pre-production. So I would go with the actors where we would go in the rooms, on the stairs, in the kitchen. And I would say, yeah, come around there. And I would be there with the cinematographer. There were a lot of times where I went to the house and by myself and just sit there and think of the shots. And it was different because I could really plan it out and think it through like, this is where we want to tilt here. This is where it would be off camera. So I would take copious notes on all of it. So it's how I like to make movies, but the challenge was to make it look spontaneous. Now, that was his process. And I think that his process changes from film to film. But in this one, you know, he wanted to be a little bit more um, contained because it's a low budget. And um, so he was writing the script and also writing all of the um, the the cinematography directions, the his directing notes as he's writing the script because he's in the space. And I was wondering when you get in the space with your actors, what's your process like? Um, well, I pretty much um, plan everything in advance. I draw uh, I draw a storyboard, and in the storyboard. Um, for me, it's very important to create a certain rhythm of images. So the time that passes um, throughout a scene is actually what is very important when I draw a storyboard. And mm-hmm. also the decision of what is in on and what is off. Because some of the scenes that I shoot um, are only partly to be seen. Some of the action takes place um, off off the frame, so you don't yeah. see it, you just hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this creates a certain suspense, which I appreciate a lot, and it also triggers your own fantasy when you watch the film. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I would like to say something about what you um, added about the, the ending of, of the visit. Yeah. Because it's very interesting that now that you spoiled the story and you told me what it, <laughs> how it ends like... I really have to say I stopped the film in the right moment because (laughs) that is what was really open to me. I thought, what is the answer to all those strange things happening? So, and I have to admit, this happens to me in a lot of genre films. The first half is very interesting very often because Mm -hmm. you have all those questions. You think, what is this going to be about? Why is the grandmother behaving so strangely? What are those diapers about? But then when you give me the answer, I find it 
extremely simple. This is not really, I don't know, this is not um, enlightening my <laughs> experience of life at all. And that's probably why I chose with my film Little Joe to not give you those answers. Little Joe, for example, is a sort of crazy genre film that does not have that ending where you have all those psychological or sociological yeah. or whichever answers yeah. that are mostly disappointing, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I am curious, you know, you're you're talking a little bit about um, emotional turns, too. I, I'm, I think... I'd, I'd like to know your thoughts on a movie or a director like M. Night Shyamalan, who is extremely, um, he's on the surface with his with his emotions, right? Like um, he's got these family films and, and very often there are these things that, that kind of tug at your heartstrings and he knows that that's what he's doing. And I was curious about um, your thoughts on that because I see in your films um, a kind of reservedness of emotion. Um, and and I was wondering if that is something that uh, cloys on you or is it something that you admire? I think the films that I do um, trigger a different level of emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I can explain this in English very well, but um, I think there is a sort of immediate or superficial emotion for example, you see a boy which is who is run over by a bus. <gasps> oh no, that's terrible. This <laughs> is this is an immediate, very strong, but it's a immediate and I would say slightly superficial emotion. Yeah, superficial is mean. Maybe it's not superficial, but I am tra- trying to find emotions that have got to do with a certain um, understanding of human condition. Mm-hmm. So. If you understand that the boy who was just run over, he has a mother who asked him to go and buy her a package of cigarettes because she's addicted to smoking, then this is a different level of emotion. You suddenly understand the tragic uh, dependency on a mother and a son and a mother who loses her child. That's a different thing. And I think... I think this is what I'm trying to say. In my films, I go for a level of emotion that reflects on who we are, like Mm -hmm. what is our life about, (laughs) what is our position in life and what is our aim in life. Mm -hmm. And I do think that in Shyamalan's films, this is reached sometimes. I think The Village was one of his best films where he sort of reached a certain level of deeper emotion yeah. because it reflected upon how society works, Yeah, which means by lies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think some of his other films um, stay more or less in that superficial level. And now that you told me the ending of The Visit, I, I assume that this is the case for The Visit as well. <laughs> Well, I do think so. M. M. Night Shyamalan said, quote, when he was talking about building two emotional turns, said, quote, it's respect. The audience is saying if you make something too emotional, too soft right off the bat, I'm not with you because that's my life experience. Now, if I acknowledge their well-deserved cynicism of the world and I can come in with that voice and say, I'm with you. And then we together turn and find something emotional. They'll go there and they want to. The simplest version is you have not earned the right to go to that emotional place yet. That's respect. And, you know, like like you, I think sometimes he reaches it, sometimes he doesn't. But I think he's trying to get that process there. I can see him trying to do that yeah, with the I visit. Yeah, I see that too. Yeah, um, because <laughs> there, there is, though. you know, like the like a mother um, 
who's got two kids and she was never able to um, reconcile with her parents and, you know, that type of thing. It's just that yeah, the mother character. Yeah, but it's character. a pretext. In his mm-hmm. film, it's a pretext. It's not what the film is really about. What I it's think, really about it is try to make you scream and cry. What do you think was the thing that really kind of scared you about it? Well, I'm very much afraid of witches. All stories about witches scare me a lot. Mm-hmm. And this grandmother that she behaved is as if she was part of some, some cult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had recently seen Hereditary, so maybe I sort of expected that there would be some revelation of a cult going on in that house. This I would find very disturbing. I would say also that it was a little bit of a misdirection if you um, on his part, which I think was successful. Um, if you look at the costuming of her, she does have a kind of, you know, like older witchiness to her. And, you know, it's, it's um, you know, kind of guiding you in a direction. And that's not what this actress's hair looks like at all in, in real life, you know. But he chose to go with a kind of like longer, um, unkempt, um, you know, white uh, hairdo for her and these, you know, kind of um, hippier clothes, I would say. And and I can see that as a possibility that that someone would think that there was something witchy going on with her. But also when you say the, the final solution is that they have killed the grandparents and they are from a mental home, that is quite <laughs> politically incorrect. I mean, um, <laughs> but I don't even want to say political incorrect. It's philosophical incorrect. It's human <laughs> incorrect. Why would crazy people be violent and kill other people? That's a very, <laughs> I don't know, old-fashioned point of view, don't you think? Well, it's a an ins- it's a great point that you bring up, though, too, because M. Night Shyamalan, I think he, he idolizes these directors of a certain time, and these directors of a certain time really didn't have to think about those things. You know, mm. it was just kind of there in the cultural consciousness that, yes, this would be how something would happen. And so I think sometimes he gets away with some of that stuff because he is um, kind of emulating some of these directors from the 1970s or mm-hmm. 1980s. Yeah. Do you feel like when you're, emul- you know, if you're emulating a director, um, well, first off, do you have directors that you emulate in your life? I emulate um, a director called Maya Darren. She's an <laughs> experimental mm-hmm. filmmaker in New York in the 1940s. Yes. And her experimental films are really amazing. I think she's very creative concerning editing and creating very spooky uh surrealist films they are really like nightmares for example meshes of the afternoon you have that lady in a black veil and she walks stairs up and down and there's a knife and it's really a spooky film and the music is the same composer who um, composed the music for my film little joe mm-hmm. teiji ito he's a japanese composer and i think his film is also very I don't know, uh, sinister, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, dark, but also erotic music. It's really special. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit about the process of working with actors on set and a little bit about cinematography uh, choices. Um, But we'll be right back.
winner up the podcast you're listening to to tell you about another podcast. That's right. We got this with Mark and Hal. That's correct, Mark. This is Hal. We do the hard work for you, settling all of the meaningless arguments you have with your friends. So tune in every week on the Maximum Fun Network for We Got This with Mark and Hal. And all your questions will be asked and answered. You're welcome. All right. That's enough of that. We got this. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Jessica Hausner in New York. And uh, we are talking about M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit. Um, so I wanted to get into the precision of M. Night Shyamalan's dialogue um, that he, he does with all of his movies. But um, for this particular one, he said, quote, There was no ad-libbing dialogue-wise. I don't mind anybody suggesting things, but it has to earn itself its way in. Generally speaking, there is so much demand on the actors, they are not thinking about being writers at all. Like, hey, that's not where the character is coming from. And we give them a million suggestions and they are trying to have it. And if they add handles or hedges like, um, uh, this or something, I'm like, get rid of those handles. They are just crutches. Get rid of that. Go right into the line. Okay, so that's the way that he was thinking about it. And especially as he's working with younger actors, you know, he's trying to make sure that they're reading the dialogue exactly as it is. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, that in your films, whether or not you've had to kind of train actors out of, you know, uh, ad-libbing or if, if they're already great at just taking the dialogue at face value. Well, it depends on the actor. Um, I think some actors are... Um working with the dialogue in a very precise way so they don't add those little sounds mm -hmm. and others have a very different approach I remember for example working with Emily Beecham she she was look, she's the lead actress in my film and she was when we rehearsed the scene she was adding all those little words or she, mm -hmm. she was saying the phrase three times uh, instead of one time or mm -hmm. repeating half of the phrase and then the rest of the phrase. So that was quite disturbing. And then she said to me, don't worry, when we shoot, I will say the phrase the way it is. <laughs> um, and she really did. So that was just her way to, I don't know, to, to, to set her mind on the scene and to get into a certain acting And it was a bit stressful for me, but uh, after a while I understood what she was doing. Were there times in your career where you've felt that ad-libbing, um, you know, making things up on the fly, having the actors add lines, um, added something to the project? No, never. <laughs> no, really, it's, it's, it, I mean, it depends probably on what sort of dialogues you write, but the way I work, the dialogues have a certain musical rhythm. They are mm -hmm. like the song, the text of a song. It's, mm -hmm. it's, and so I work on them uh, to make them sound as they sound. Also, like the way the words are put together, it has a certain rhythm. Mm -hmm. And some of the words, for example, are deliberately repeated. So it's very precise and it's meant to be like that. So there is no use in adding something. It, Do it you feel um, your actors generally know that that's how it's going to work when they come in, that this is no, what they're going to do? Not always. Not always. And some actors, because my directing is very, um, 
like everything is very much planned in advance. So it's like a choreography. They, mm -hmm. the, the, the actors move in within the frame like in a ballet. Yeah. And some actors like it, some don't. And that's why some actors try to add lines or offer some other movements. And then I'm always very polite. I say, thank you for your idea, but no thank you. Uh, apparently, you are much more polite than M. Night Shyamalan, who uh, would be very uh, irate if anyone made up lines or had the hedges. He would just yell and be like, no, you are not allowed to do that. And uh, from behind the camera. <laughs> but I mean, that's just your directing style is maybe more um, reasonable. <laughs> reasonable. <laughs> well, you shouldn't uh, yell at your actors, should you? <laughs> Probably not. But I think that uh, maybe he developed a, an interesting relationship with them. He says... And, and this is something that I think that you'll probably have something to say, too, because you do have some younger actors that you've been working with in your career. And especially in Little Joe, you have a few younger actors. Um, and he was saying that um, he was working with child actors. He is definitely kind of using these parents that they have as part of his process. Mm -hmm. um, he said, quote, um, I need them to be really, really smart, the child actors, because we are going to talk like directors and actors. We are going to get very deep in complexity and call you on it every time you do something that doesn't defend your character. I go, you are not defending your character because you sounded like an ass right now. Is that what you wanted to say about him or her right now? You weren't respecting him or her. And then the other thing I require is the families to be healthy, positive families. Literally, they are my co-directors with the kids. Sometimes there is a moment where I don't have the vocabulary to speak to the kids. Sometimes I just don't get there. So I need someone who is a master of the, their vocabulary to do it. Um, so that's what his process was, because I think he was getting kind of frustrated with the children sometimes where he just couldn't get to them. And so he would need to let the parents step in and try to interpret um, best for their children. And I was wondering for you, working with your young actors, what is your process? My process is different. I have to admit, this does not sound very, very nice, what you say oh, no. <laughs> or what he says. Um, I, my experience is actually that I spend a lot of time with the casting. So I, I try to find a child that um, I can work with and that is very fit for the role. Mm -hmm. And um, this takes a while. But then I've had a lot of like I've several times I've had children in my films. And if I find the child that I can work with and that is really very good for the role, then actually it's sometimes much more easy than with adult actors. I have the feeling that a child is still much closer to playing, playing around, playing mm -hmm. a role. That is what yeah. children do. They That is their job, sort of. <laughs> they yeah. are actors. They play around the whole time and they play to to they imitate adults they imitate everything and they play around trying out new styles so children do it all the time acting and i think if you have the right connection to a child and you find the child that you can connect with it's super easy i for example with little joe i had this young boy kid connor um who played joe a 13 year old boy or 12 mm -hmm. and 
I talked to him very seriously and he understood everything about his role, about the psychology, about the technical aspect of a scene, like when I needed him to look slightly more to the right. And he didn't do it at all in a technical way, but very subtle and very much within his role. So he was really a pleasure to work with. And I think he also acted uh, um, in a very convincing way. So I enjoy working with children, but it takes time to find the right ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think M. Night Shyamalan, too, when he was casting for this to find these two young actors, he went to Australia. He'd cast all over the world, mm -hmm. but apparently these two actors from uh, Australia were the, the two that seemed to possess a maturity, but still a kind of childlikeness. Were, um, they, were they siblings? No, they weren't. Okay. No. Yeah, it's uh, they just happened to both be in Australia and to mm -hmm. both be um, stage actors. They came from oh, really? the stage. They're really yeah. good. I mean, I love those children in the film. They're yeah. brilliant. I, I think, you know, he was talking about um, his his use of stage actors that I thought was really interesting because he said that you had to kind of start with um, people who already have a kind of comfort level with themselves and um, who are able to do what stage actors do, which is um, go uh, on stage and do one, two shows a day and give sometimes a different performance for every show and commit to that different performance for every show. Um, because M. Night Shyamalan actually is, um, he he doesn't get coverage on his actors uh, much. He, he goes in with very, very long shots. And so he's expecting the actor to do a lot of heavy lifting um, mm -hmm. because he's, he's not going to be able to kind of cut back and forth between the characters in the edit. How do you work with editing and with that type of actor? Are you looking for different performances in different takes? Are you looking for more of a, um, you know, uh, making sure that they hit it every time or get to the kind of perfect, perfect performance? How do you um, well, define I, that? I, um, I do have long shots as well, so I don't shoot any coverage. Mm -hmm. But it's also very European style. In Europe, you don't do that. I mean, you just go for the, for the take that you want. You don't shoot whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, apart from that, the style that I create is, I have to say, very different. I, but I appreciated this very much in the visit because I think the children are acting very, like it's nearly hyper-realism. <laughs> it's, it's a sort of forced realism they are so like they are so talkative and they're so witty and they are so intelligent and arty so but i liked it i enjoyed it the way those children were so special and so enlightened mm -hmm. but in my films there is a different style i think in my films um it is not about showing this individual original side of human beings. What I do in my films is much more I show how much individuals are also influenced by their surroundings. Mm -hmm. So the characters in my films, children or adults, no matter, they they behave as if like we feel how much they are suppressed by the rules of the society they live in. So sometimes mm -hmm. they are very polite, for example, or very quiet. Um, or what you mentioned in the beginning, you said something that, I don't know, the emotions were a bit distant or I you know, don't know exactly what you said. Yeah. 
because the reason is because I show, I focus on that side of our human existence where we do not exactly express what we would like to express. We don't exactly say what we think, mm -hmm. but on the contrary, we pretend a little bit and we say the things that people want us to say and that we were taught to say and feelings that we were taught to have. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit different. I The characters in my films are a bit like robots in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to get a little bit more into um, some of the editing stuff that we brought up, because um, I'd love to talk about uh, the editing process when you've got longer takes. Um, and then also a little bit more about um, some music and some other things. Um, we'll be right back. Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the odd couple. Adam Scott and Jane Levy. Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll learn what it's all about. <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner. Baby, this is family. My Uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight. A new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for maximum fun. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Jessica Hausner, and we're talking about The Visit. Okay, so um, we did talk a little bit about editing and having the, longing, the longer takes, and I'm curious about that um, and, and what happens in the editing room while you're there and you have, you know, done this very long take and you're going to kind of put it together in the sequence. Do you ever feel the need to cut those up? Do you ever regret doing a long take? Um, what are you getting out of that in the edit room? Well, since I... Um draw that storyboard before we go to the shooting, I know already very well how much time I will need for each scene. Mm -hmm. So normally I shouldn't be surprised in the editing room. <laughs> so the, the, the idea is basically that I know in advance how long that scene takes and if it's longer than in the script or maybe even shorter or is it a slow scene or a fast scene. So this rhythm of the whole film is already created in advance when I mm -hmm. draw the storyboard. So if everything goes fine, normally in the editing room, I edit the film the way I had scripted it or had I had designed it. Yeah. But of course, not every scene turn out, turns out to be exactly as I thought it would be. So mm -hmm. of course, there are some scenes that have to be changed. Um, sometimes I edit them shorter or I change their place. I put them somewhere else in the film or I wipe them out completely. Yeah. So this is happening, of course, and it's always a question of the rhythm. It's it's like in a music piece. I have had films where the editing was more complicated than other films. For example, with Little Joe, you have a film that is uh, very much about perception. Mm -hmm. So we did have takes during the shooting where 
the actors were acting out this sort of I have been changed by the plant more obviously and mm -hmm. other takes where they acted it out less obviously and this was done because I thought during the editing I will have to have some choice yes and during the test screenings also so we had versions of the edit where the audience thought yes of course the plant is changing people and other edits where they thought no nothing changes at all And so, yes, for example, with Little Joe, that was also a sort of process to find the right balance between giving the audience the answer or giving the right hint in the right moment, mm -hmm. but then also leaving it open to a certain yeah, personal interpretation. You know, and he, you know, Shyamalan did the same thing where he had the, um, the actors deliver Uh, multiple different kinds of takes that would have fit for different genres if it was more humorous or if yeah. they were scared in one scene. Yeah, you know, because like we were saying, it's a long take. You can't cut between things. You just only have the different performance um, to choose from. Um, you also said something about, um, you know, having people guess. Despite what Shyamalan <laughs> does in some of his movies where he gives you all of the answers, he is actually a fan of something being incomplete. He said... Uh, of the visit. It's a contained movie, and I love contained movies. The posters on my wall are Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Diabolique, Twelve Angry Men. It's part of a deep aesthetic philosophy that I have that the film needs to be incomplete in some way. Is she good? Is she evil? There's passive entertainment, and it's all over the place, but an incompleteness contributes just a little bit to every great movie, which I think he's trying to reach that here. Yeah. But yes, and he does if you don't watch the last 20 minutes. I could, yeah, I could say <laughs> that. Yeah, definitely. You, you're not quite sure because you start kind of thinking like, oh, well, this is why their mother didn't want to be anywhere near yes, the grandparents. Sure. A lot yeah. of things going on. For example, you, meant, you mentioned the film Get Out. Mm -hmm. um, I love that film a lot, but it has the same problem. In the last 15 minutes, you get this crazy brain surgery answers, which pff, I, I find them very... Um, Yeah, um, not necessary. How, how do I say that? The film could be left on a much more interesting level if I don't close that bottle so randomly. I don't really understand why a lot of um, directors do that. I don't know well, where that comes from. This is actually something that I can that I can speak to. Um, uh, is that in the U.S. when you are working through the studio system, there is a kind of um, Uh, it's it's an onus. It's uh, it's a kind of goal put on directors that they have to close up a film. Mm -hmm. They have to give a reason, and it's something that's been happening for the past, you know, like ten, twenty years. That um, to really try to get moviegoers into theaters, they want to make movies feel more complete. But then what we have is you know movies that are almost too complete. They're too round. Yeah, um, because you can give an ambiguous answer. Yeah, I mean, it can be completed, but still seen from at least two sides. Yeah. But, you know, like that's something that we have a, a, an issue with in, in uh, you know, some test screenings where people do want that complete completeness mm -hmm. um, to go to the theater. But I think that might be a difference also in um, the abilities of European filmmakers to kind of um, follow their own path and to, to have a, a different sensibility in the types of films that they release. Um, and then, you know, before we go, I'd like to get into uh, cinematography real quick, um, because the cinematography for uh, The Visit is actually 
quite different from what um, Shyamalan was doing in his other films, which, you know, A, had bigger budgets and B, were trying to be a little bit slicker in the studio sense. Um, but he said, quote, I actually used the cinematographer Maurice Alberti, who shot The Wrestler for Darren Aronofsky. It was actually Darren who recommended her, and lucky enough, she was available and she wanted to do it. The kind of intimacy of the camera work was from her as an operator of how to portray when you are holding handheld, how not to make it feel handheld. Don't make it feel handheld and try to make it beautiful. Um, so they are taking so they're taking care to turn and hold all of those things together with a handheld sensibility. So he wanted to shoot handheld because there is a, um, I think there's versatility to that. It's sometimes easier. You can kind of move around the room. And, and it's in the story, you know, the girl is doing that documentary. Exactly. Yeah. So he's he's kind of mirroring the documentary yeah. um, form as he's shooting things himself. Yeah. Yeah, it's clear. It's, I mean, you always have to find a specific style for each film, I think, and it has to convey what you want to convey. <laughs> and uh, and this, also I, I like the cinematography in The Visit very much. I think it is not over, over explicit, but in a very um, easy and elegant way, it does have that feeling of the, of the documentary camera of the girl. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think they even use two cameras. She has one and her brother has one. That's how they manage to be on screen because I think in a very large part of the film you really see what they film. And if only the girl would film, you would never see her. So they have two cameras. I think that it's a very good trick or a good idea to be able to show both children. Yeah, he's I got the great tricks. Yeah, I think that and that works really well. And for you, I mean, for little Joe, you have a camera that is very often locked off or it is very slow moving. Yes. Well, in my film, um, right, it opens with that surveillance camera. So that already gives you an idea um, what this <laughs> cinematography wants. Mm -hmm. The camera work in little Joe is um, pretty much about the camera being a character of his own. The camera is not following the actors. Sometimes what the actors are doing is off frame. So the camera follows his own or its own rule, its own rhythm, its own way. So the cinematographer I work with, Martin Schlacht, on all my films, the other day he told me that when he comes from another shooting and then he works with me, On one of my films, he always needs one day to change this <laughs> because normally his job is to to follow the action and to to sort of follow the actor what he's doing. And in my film, he shouldn't do that. In my film, he if the camera approaches two actors because they talk to each other and you want to know more, then at some moments, even though they still talk, the camera continues to move and moves past them. And suddenly they are in the off and you have that feeling, oh, did I miss something? <laughs> you're, you're telling him to not follow any of the rules that he was supposed to follow yes. before. <laughs> Um, Jessica, we have to wrap up, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about Little Joe and yes. also talking about The Visit. And again, people can see Little Joe in theaters uh, early December, correct? Yes, I think December 3rd. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. 
Okay, so keep an eye out for it, and um, it will probably come to a theater near you. And if not, I hope that it will come to um, uh, rental on demand streaming. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. Have a great time in Thank New York. Thank you too. Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at Switchblade Pod or email us at Switchblade Sisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook dot com slash groups slash switchblade sisters our producer is casey o'brien our senior producer is laura swisher and this is a production of maximumfun.org i don't want to star in your movie maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported